The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome to Brutal Nation podcast series is dedicated to lesser known serial killers and acts of true crime. <laughs> Sorry, I was swallowing uh, some food. I'm your host, Scott Alexander, and right across from me is the one, uh, the only, the mysterious, Tammy Underwood. Say hi, Tam. Hi, everybody. All right. Why so am we, I mysterious? Well, because I'm not quite sure where in the woods you came, and I can't find the rest of your Sasquatch clan. That's because my mother's avoiding you. <laughs> she would never avoid me. Yeah. Your mom. Your mom wants hot loving. No. Oh, yeah. No. I bet you she lays in bed at night thinking about hot loving. No, you know what's funny is, not about that, but um, we were talk. her and I were talking the other day, she was in the kitchen, and I said, you know, Scott is getting very annoying about this. He goes, yeah, but in a weird way, you'd miss it, huh? And I said, kind of, I might. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. But yeah. So All right. So you got Coleman and Brown for me today. Coleman and Brown. Alton Coleman and Deborah Denise Brown. Yeah, okay, so it's a man and woman. Yes. Cool. Um, so I got a question for you, okay? I might have an answer. If you're reading a book that's written by one of your great suspense authors or even a horror book by Stephen King, and you discovered one of the characters um, grew up being called Pissy, P-I-S-S-Y, by the neighborhood children... Because he wet his pants often. Would you be shocked to find out he had been the killer all along? No. No? No, not, not, not even like a little. Okay, well, what about if you read that in addition to being teased, Pissy had gotten arrested for robbery and was sent to prison? Would it shock you to find out that after only serving two years in prison, he not only had begun to enjoy women, wearing women's clothing very frequently, he also desired very rough sex. Would that shock you? No, but that wouldn't shock me with anybody, present or not. And about the rough sex, even? Yeah. No, oh, that's true. You like it rough. Well, because everybody's got their own little fetishes, right? Okay. And maybe that's just his. Okay. So, therefore, so if you read all this about the character, you wouldn't be surprised to find out he was the one doing all the killings. Um, so, if that doesn't shock you, I did say that, <laughs> then what I'm about to say should, shouldn't phase you should not phase you a bit. Alden Coleman and Deborah Denise Brown will go down in history as America's version of Great Britain's murdering duo, Myra Henley and Ian Brady. Oh, no, they're after kids. Yeah, kind of. Well, somewhat, yeah. God damn it. You'll be, I mean, it is weird. I mean, like I said, I picked some convoluted ones. This one's kind of convoluted. Um, the Coleman-Brown saga began in the mid-70s in five different states and involves one of the, if not the, largest manhunts for a murderer in recent history. It stands out as probably the most depraved and cruelest crime spree in the modern age of the American criminal justice system. Uh, the complete lack of respect for human life Coleman and Brown demonstrated shocked even the most hardened FBI agents and police officials to their core. In a span of fewer than 60 days, from start to finish, they assaulted, raped, and murdered their way from Illinois 
up through Michigan, back down to Kentucky, and then back up again before the authorities were able to catch them. Um, although Coleman and Brown are all but forgotten amongst the other criminals behind bars today, they're e the evil, their innocent victims had to endure lives on in those families to this day. Unlike their victims, they have every they had every opportunity to use the judicial appeal system to seek some sort of mercy from the courts that sentenced them. The mercy they sought is a mercy they didn't show one of their victims as they terrorized the Midwest. Every time there's a new court ruling or delay of any sort, the surviving members of their victims' families have to endure the horror their loved one endured at the hand of this murderous couple. Um, one of the children that survived death at Coleman and Brown's hands vows that she herself will never get married. Uh, she's choosing not to get married because, A, she doesn't think she will ever be able to trust somebody in that capacity, and, B, she questions whether she will be pure enough for her husband. Um, another surviving victim turned to drugs in an effort to numb the pain of what they, were made, they made her endure, and not only does she battle her addiction to drugs, but she also has also attempted to commit suicide several times and struggles with debilitating post-traumatic stress. Then there's a mother and father who must come to terms with the fact Coleman will never stand trial for the death of their daughter, and they may, they may live out the rest of their days in the agonizing truth that they might never, might not ever, I'm sorry, um, find out what happened in regards to the circumstances around her, her senseless slaughter. Alton Coleman's family considers themselves victims as well. Get this. However, not victims of their evil, deadly relative. No, in their eyes, they're victims of a corrupt judicial system, a system that aims to persecute an innocent man and won't rest until that innocent man is dead. Okay, I'm going to stop right there because if the FBI is fucking looking for you, this isn't some backwater goddamn thing like, like Joe Bob, we got to get rid of fucking Cletus. It's the FBI. Yeah. You're not fucking victims of shit, well, so shut yeah. your fucking mouth. Yeah, well, and then Deborah Brown's mother simply ruse the day her daughter and laid eyes on Coleman. <laughs> Before she hooked up with the likes of him, she was a good girl who had never run in, had a run-in with police at all. And you know what? To Deborah's mother, I say, fuck you too. <laughs> yeah. And here's why, because people, we quit blaming other people for your goddamn kids' bullshit. Your daughter made her choice. Yeah. Whether Coleman was involved or not, she made a a, a, a decision. Yeah. A choice. So, you know what? Fuck both of them. Right. Well, and like I said, what she's not accepting is the fact that by the time law enforcement caught up with her innocent daughter and that evil man, one thing was obvious. It was clear to everyone except her that Brown was not only actively involved with Coleman's acts, but she was also equally as vicious in carrying them out. Um, aside from the horrors of what Alton Coleman and Denise Brown put their victims through, the thing that's going to piss everyone off is that he should have never been allowed on the streets to begin with, to even start his sadistic spree in the first place. Time and time again, Coleman found a way to manipulate the system in his favor. He managed to beat charges of sexual assault on more than one occasion. Um, prosecutors and law enforcement officials knew they had a monster on their hands. They did everything they could to legally 
they could legally to lock him up and had to helplessly stand by as another jury, as one jury after another, let him walk free. Each and every jury he faced that cleared him of the charges felt confident in the system that was working to set an innocent man free when in actuality that system only freed him up to act in even darker desires than those he was supposedly being wrongfully accused of. Okay. If you haven't guessed yet, Altman Brown, I mean, Altman Coleman and Denise Brown are black. I actually hadn't guessed that. Oh, I thought you did when I said innocent man. Okay. Okay. You know what? I'm going to stay quiet because I'm just... Are you madder? I am. And let me tell you why. You see this a lot, especially in the black communities. Do you? Hold on. Before you guys fucking crucify me, every time that, that's, and I'm not saying all, but some black people get into trouble and it makes the media, there's always a family member out there going, he was innocent. He didn't deserve to be shot even though he tried to rob this liquor store. Which I actually say, I, I say that verbatim from something I actually saw on the news. Um, <laughs> that a lady had said, yeah, her, her, her son had gotten shot um, because he pulled a gun at a liquor store. And then he pulled the gun on a cop. Wow. And he got shot. Hey, here's a, here's a little tip for you. You want to not get shot by the cops? Don't pull a gun on the cop. Don't pull a gun on the cops, stupid. So, yeah, this is another one of those things. That, oh, they were sweet and innocent. They're being, no, they're not being framed. Fuck you. God damn. Yeah. Kiss my ass. So, anyways, Alton Coleman was born in Waukegan, Illinois, a small Midwest town just 30 minutes north of Chicago. He wasn't a very intelligent child. As a matter of fact, some called him mildly retarded. <laughs> That's their quote, not mine. I use that all the time. <laughs> No, but you know do. what? I'm going to call him extremely retarded. <laughs> so go on with this retard story. Yeah. Well, into his school age years, he frequent he frequently wet his pants. So much so the other children in the neighborhood teased him relentlessly and began calling him pissy. Actually, that's one of the uh, things that we talked about last week when it comes to the three signs of yeah. uh, to watch out for serial killers, except it's yeah. wetting. But yeah, yeah frequently uh, peeing your pants, uh, that, that involuntary control. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's one of the uh, that's a key factor. That's kind of scary because my, my son, before he hit puberty, what has been a lot, a lot, a lot. And we'll be featuring uh, Bullfrog next week. <laughs> next week, because now he works at a freaking nursing home. Now, so oh, next sure week on. Br- oh my God! Don't say that. He's got a ton of freaking victim. He got a, yeah, a ton of possible up. victims there. Members of his family, as well as the law enforcement officials who had their dealings with him since he was a teen, said Coleman generally kept to himself. On top of that, they said he rarely showed any sort of emotion. Oh, my God. Tick number two here? Yep, number two. (laughs) Let's go for the trifecta. Yeah, as he got older, he became even more alienated from his peers. As a young adult, Coleman had quite the reputation for his unusually song, um, song, strong sex drive. Mind you, this was the late 60s, early, eight, early 70s, and a lot of people attributed this sex drive to him reportedly being bisexual. Rumor had it during the time that Coleman was more than willing to engage in sex at any time, in any place, with anybody. Um, you know you can't be bisexual, right? Tell me. No, you can't bisex. You can only rent it. <laughs> I knew you were going to say something so I think to the you, effect of it being illegal, but go ahead. No, maybe maybe he's a rent-a-sexual. He could be. 
Just saying. Just, just saying. Is that like a rent a cop? Yeah, except for more sexual. <laughs> you got to pay extra for that. Only in Bangkok. <laughs> God, disgusting. Okay. A friend of Coleman's like mother put it this way. He knew the boy was different even as a young child when, quote, as he grew up, he was deeply into insidious kinds of sexual gratification. Um, as a teen, Coleman was going around his Waukegan housing project drawing the attention of law enforcement for the first time. Even though his crimes at that time were quite petty, authorities in the area were quick to slap a troublemaker's label on him. And perhaps they knew then there were worse things to come. Um, before, men, before Coleman started wreaking havoc in, on the world around him, the authorities tried several times to keep him in their custody. However, they learned rather rapidly that Coleman had a way to, t- to talk his way out of every situation. Those who were on the opposing end in court watched as he managed to convince every jury that he was, quote, innocent. So he was kind of like Johnny Cochran during... Kind of. Hey, look, man, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. I won't lie. I testify. I I dig it. I dig it. We're good. I'm done. (laughs) According to reports, he always claimed he was being persecuted and they had the wrong man. Apparently, he felt he always fit the description of the... Suspect. Oh, that I relate to. <laughs> Friends of Coleman said that Coleman pra- practiced voodoo and the supernatural associated with the religion was what practically made him invincible when it came to law enforcement. Later, when Coltman and Harris were holed up somewhere in Detroit, Lieutenant Mark Hansen of the Waukegan PD issued a press release. In the copy printed in the Detroit Free Press, Hansen was quoted saying, Coleman was adept at conning any jury that he faced. His stories are so convincing that people are impressed. How dare the authorities treat such a decent man this way? When he was able to talk his way out of a rape charge, the prosecutor opposing learned this the hard way. Um, despite Coleman's later claims, he was actually quite intelligent. Um, he managed to figure out which crimes he could commit that proved difficult to prove in court. The former U.S. attorney, Fred Foreman, shut up, Scott, practically, practically said the man had found the magic formula. Even so, he didn't talk his way out of everything since he had been sent to prison prior to this spree. He was sent there enough times to be considered a career criminal. Um, Coleman also found another tactic that proved useful to him in court. When the voodoo god Baron Samidi didn't happen to listen to his request, so he didn't have the protection, he resorted to his fallback. You know, the tried and true practice of witness intimidation. You know, that one. Beautiful. Are you sure he wasn't in uh, the Gypsy Jokers? You know, I was wondering, but no, I don't think, do they allow blacks in their ranks? Not being racist, just asking for a friend. You are so racist. Oh, my God. Every time, every time you have one black friend, you know, and now I don't think that they allow blacks over there. I was asking for you, actually. Not for me. I am not racist because I have more than one black friend. You want to join the Jokers? No, I don't. Never mind, Scott. No, And let me tell you why. Number one, I don't want to be, you know, like 
confined to some group. I want to ride where I want. Ride free, motherfuckers. <laughs> free with the wind in your goatee. <laughs> God dang right, man. My goatee whipping around everywhere. Looking all sexy and studly as I always do. I want to be able to go on my own and like rub my nipples and rub myself down with cream cheese. You know, things that every normal person who rides a bike does. I love cream cheese. Why do you got to ruin it for me? <laughs> That's why I call myself the bagel of love. Oh my God. I'm a love bagel. Not an everything bagel. Oh, believe me. Ask your mom. I'm an everything bagel. Ew. Ew. <laughs> she likes the cream cheese too. Yeah. The prosecutors in his multiple cases had a difficult time proving Coleman's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Since the majority of his charges were sexual assaults involving children in his own family, they didn't want to see him out of prison put they didn't want to see him put in prison. Um, for example, there was an instance in 1983, check this out, my mom was disgusted, where Coleman's own sister filed a report with the authorities. The claim stated that her own brother had attempted to rape his eight-year-old niece. When he went to court three weeks later, she appeared in court to testify. However, she testified on his behalf, saying the whole thing was simply a misunderstanding. Apparently, it didn't make any difference because families, quote, grow through these things all the time. She implied that quite a few families experienced a misunderstanding involving a family member sexually assaulting a child. Well, I might have agreed with her if the child were older. After all, it happened to me. But in my case, certain family members were protecting my abuser. They said I made the whole thing up in an effort to draw attention away from the bad things I was doing. You know, when I started drinking to numb the pain I was going through, that was to draw attention away from myself. So I accused him. Um, so when the presiding judge listened to her testimony, I was going to say, that sounds horrible. I'm just, I'm feeling better. I'm like not sick anymore, but my fucking, my, my sinuses are all fucked Are they up. like swollen and cloggy? just cloggy and i want to interject something with that right there i've got kids and if anybody in my family and this isn't even me trying to be macho or no bullshit like that if anybody were to touch my kids no matter not, how old huh it's not a fucking misunderstanding yeah. they'll never find their body ever and I guarantee that. I much less if they did get busted and went to court. I'm not gonna say it was a misunderstanding. Happens in every family. <laughs> no, they'd be like, "Hey, what happened to your brother Phil? Be like, <laughs> Why is he not in court today, Scott? Huh? Weird thing. Must have skipped town. I'm not interesting. Huh. <laughs> that happens in every family. <laughs> yeah, doesn't that happen in every family? They just <laughs> skip town, right? Yeah. No, I, I would. I, I, I don't care who the fuck it is. I would kill him. Yeah. Because you, it's your job to protect your children. Yeah, as a parent. Yeah, you gotta protect your fucking kids. You know, my son's eighteen years old and he's built like a fucking brick tank? wall. He's a tank. <laughs> yeah, I still protect my son. I I would fucking murder for him because he's my son. Well, I'm your stepdaughter. Would you murder for me? Hmm. Depends on uh, if your mom wore that Catwoman outfit that I bought Never her. Never mind. <laughs> So when the presiding judge listened to her testimony in the motion for dismissal, he was flabbergasted. He addressed the court when he said, I think the woman, as she stands here today, is terrified of this man. 
He took his statement one step further by saying everything she said as she testified on the stand about the incident was, quote, completely implausible. Um, in the end, though, he had no other choice other than to dismiss the charges against Coleman and release him back into the unsuspecting world. What else could he do when there seemed to be no victim since the witness, witnesses claimed it didn't happen? Before he went on his MedWest rampage, his rap sheet looked like he was on a mission to embark on a one-man sexual crime wave. Um, that There was one time also, back in 1973, where at he was... Camp? Huh? In band camp? One yeah. One time at band camp? Where he, as well, shut up, as well as one of his accomplices, accomplices, excuse me, abducted an elderly woman before they raped and robbed her. When it came time for her to face him in court, she refused to admit they had raped her. As a result, Coleman only had to spend two years in prison for the robbery. Upon his release from Joliet, not to be confused with Juilliard, um, Coleman only waited three months before he was apprehended on another rape charge. That time, he managed to talk his way into an acquittal of the rape, but had to spend a little time locked up for a lesser charge. It was only four years after being released on that charge when Coleman was picked up for raping someone else, and the jury acquitted him there as well. That's fucking ridiculous, man. Yeah. It's rape after rape after rape, and the jury and everybody else... He's an innocent man. Just but go remember, free. When he's going in front of these juries, they can't bring up the other charges that were against him. It's illegal. Oh, this is fucking stupid. Yeah. So, um, let's see. I personally think that your your past should come into into play for like charges. Okay, for example, I've got a past where I've been arrested for, for violence. Oh. So if yeah. I if I went out and I did something that was violent you can look at my history and go, this guy has a history of violence. Yes. This isn't a one-time thing or, hey, this happened like twice. Thing. But, you know, like if it's happening time and time again, you gotta look. I, I, I believe that it, people should be able to look at that and go, look, there's a history of violence here. Right. Now something needs to be done. Right. I because, agree with you. You know, I can understand if you're falsely accused once. I can understand twice. if you're falsely accused twice. Yeah. Third time I'm looking at you. Going, huh? I nay, don't think nay. <laughs> not same, same. That's not same, same. That's no, no, not same, same. Yeah. And by the fourth and fifth time, I'm like, dude, you did it. I don't, I don't care what the fuck you said. You fucking did it. Yeah. No, I, I kind of agree with you. I kind of agree with you. Um. So, anyways, um, damn it. Oh, one year after that, he was accused of attempted rape, and which ended up being dismissed again. Um, then there was a dismissal for the rape of his niece in 1983, and it was in early 1984 when a grand jury in Chicago actually did <laughs> indict him for raping a friend's daughter at knife point before he killed her. Upon hearing that he was a wanted man for that crime, he up and disappeared. Uh, that was when he and Deborah Brown embarked on a crime spree that spanned multiple states. Um, but the police could never understand Coleman and Brown's choice to go underground at that time. However, approximately 15 years after their arrest, the authorities came out and said Coleman, who is obviously black, 
committed his crimes because of the intense hatred he had towards the black community. Seriously? Um, many of his friends claim this theory is simply absurd, absurd as the majority of their victims were also black. They basically blamed the victims when they came forward with the claim that victims just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, so apparently to him, black lives don't matter. Yeah, apparently not. <laughs> this theory was based on the fact Coleman intended to stick to the predominantly black neighborhoods because they offered him a good cover to blend in, right? Well, yeah, exactly. So, we talked about this like with Canada, man. Well, yeah. <laughs> if you're black and, you, uh, and you're in Calgary... You are definitely the only one that committed that crime. Oh, totally. Yeah. You know, somebody's going to go, what do you look like? Oh, he had a, uh, a Dodgers hat on and uh, some, some Reeboks. That's Jerome. We know, we know him. No, we, we, he has never committed a crime before, but there's only two black people in all of Calgary. No problem. We know it's either Jerome or, or, or Shaniqua. Or Shaniqua. <laughs> and you said it's a dude, so fuck it. We know who to go to. However, if you were to say, okay, he's a bald, fat dude. He's very, very white. Um, yeah, he was wearing a t-shirt, jeans, and uh, and some. Uh, what the fuck am I wearing? Um, Skechers. I was gonna say I don't know what kind of shoes you got on over and there. Some Skechers on, uh, and you do that <laughs> in Calgary for a sketchy guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The police are gonna look at you. And go, okay. You just described most of Canada. Um, can you narrow that down a little bit? Yeah, he had blue eyes. Well, okay. Now you're talking about about half of Canada. That's, right. That's great. So let's just search through millions and millions of people. To try to figure out who the fuck you're talking about. Yeah. I, I blend in. Yeah. So yeah, it makes sense. He's black. He's yeah. in the black communities. You know, because if I was in his community doing shit, they'd be like, it's a white dude and he was fat and bald. Oh, that's easy. That's Scott. Well, right. We, we know exactly where he's at, man. Exactly. And they're going to come pick me up. But if I'm a black dude, they're going to yeah. be like, he's a black guy and he had like uh, curly black hair. Like, oh, that's great. That's everybody in the neighborhood. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's great description there, dude, because you're, you're apparently spot on. That's fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for well, all the fucking what help. What got me is they basically, they blamed the victims. It was like, no, you were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, you deserve to die. Basically. Eh, some people do need to die. Well. My neighbors being one of them. Yeah, but they're not in the wrong place at the wrong time. They're in the wrong place at all the time. <laughs> yeah. No, that is the truth. That is the truth. That's why I pray that a plane lands on their house. Yeah. Wipes them out. So when one public official from Waukegan who happened to know Coleman since he was in diapers said, quote, that sounds crazy to me, but why else would this man choose to victimize blacks? Is it beyond logic for Coleman's choice to haunt black communities? After all, if he hunted his prey in a white community, he probably would have been apprehended shortly after his first victim, right? You know, honestly, I agree with that. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've talked about this before, the the uh, the scales of justice and justice being blind. Right. Bullshit. Um, you know, um, if you're attacking people that are what we consider throwaway people, so he's working the projects. Right. These are indigent people. Right. And or if he, if he was targeting hookers. Right. Body count would have been a hell of a lot higher. But if he was to go into a white neighborhood. You know, like if he was targeting people like me, right? He might have two bodies, right? Before you know, and before they're like on it, like we got to get this motherfucker, like what? Yeah. God, on it, now? like blue bonnet. Yeah, and it's it's shitty, but it's true. You know, right. I've always said that you know, justice for me shouldn't be d- any different than justice for everybody else, right? 
you know, uh, it's just, it's ludicrous. And I, I do believe that there's racial profiling still to oh, this yeah, day. Oh, yeah, there is. You know, yeah. um, it's fucked up, but it's it's true. And I get profiled on a whole different level because of just how I look. Because I, I look like I just stepped out of a penitentiary. You kind of do. Yeah. So, anyway, carry yeah. on. I'm done bitching for right you, now. For now. Yeah, give me five minutes. I'll bitch about something else. Yeah. So, another family friend came forward to blame everything in Coleman's, on Coleman's homosexual tendencies. He said his friend simply couldn't deal with the stigma attached to lifestyle choice. And the friend went on to say it was well known in the area that Coleman's habits were not, quote, those of a normal man. Remember, this is back in the 80s. Yeah, I know. I was trying to take that yeah. in perspective where, you know, if you were yeah. gay, then you were constantly made fun of even on TV shows. Yeah. After all, he did tend to dress like a woman quite often. This is his friend talking. And that's fine. You know. It, yeah. I wish they were more understanding. Oh, yeah. Back then because. Yeah, because even in Living Color, they very, very highly criticized the homosexual community. Remember yeah. when they had the two guys? The two snaps up, yeah. yeah. Two snaps in a Z, three snaps in a Z formation. <laughs> but yeah, you know, um, I'm, I'm kind of glad that certain minority groups um, aren't as chastised or, right. demo- or demonstri- uh, demonstrized. Is that the word I'm looking for? Ostracized. Ostracized. God damn. I mean, this is what happens when my blood sugar gets low and I try to bring it back up. But, but no, uh, ostr- I mean, chastised and demonstrized are, do fit in this situation too. Yeah. But yeah, I know what you meant, ostracized though. Yeah. Um, uh, today as they were back then because m- m- my thought has always been this right here. It shouldn't matter. Everybody's got their weird sexual thing. Correct. You know, even, and I heard a per, uh, a comedian uh, say this once. No, not Bob. Bob wears a, wear, wears a sweater. Yeah, including Bob. He likes getting hit in the nuts with a lug wrench. <laughs> no. Ouch. <laughs> I have gone out with women that you look at and you go, okay, this is going to be kind of boring sex, but, you know, that's okay. She's really nice. You go back to her house. and This is actually a true story. This has happened to me a couple of times. Um, and all of a sudden, okay, I'll be right back. And then they come out. They come back with, like, four vibrators, a fucking bull whip, and a mask going, <laughs> okay, I'm going to put my ball gag in now. Will you, will you take me from behind and use this on my butt? And you're like, whoa, I need to brace myself for this because that's a bit much there, honey. <laughs> I actually had to call a friend of mine named Dan. I got set up with this with this girl, and uh, we go out on a date and everything. And everything's going really good. You know, we'd gone out on a few dates. We get back to her house, and, you know, we're kind of, things going good. She's, okay, I'm going to go to the bathroom and freshen up, and I'll be right back. I'm, okay, later. Is this a chick from Central Oregon? Yeah. Okay. That's the one that came back with a fucking whip and a leather outfit, and she's all, it's going to get kinky. I'm all, oh, no. And I'm like... I'm like fucking messaging my buddy, damn it. Dude, you got to call me with an emergency. Like, right fucking now, right fucking now, right fucking now. He's like, what's wrong? Fucking just call me. Then he called me. Uh, hey, Dan, how's it going? My water heater. Oh, shit. Oh, no, I have to come right back to town right fucking now. She scared me. Like, in her bedroom, <laughs> she had, like, whips and chains. and All up on, like, little outlines on a 
You oh, know, it was like, like the fucking me- like the guy's garage back in the eighties. Yeah, like a fucking tool bench, man. That chick was scary as shit. Just, I like getting a little freaky. I'm thinking to myself, um, this is dangerous. I'm pretty sure that my insurance doesn't cover this, um, and I don't want to have to explain to nine one one how I got like an aquarium shoved up my butthole. Um, because and Nemo's coming out of your mouth, and Nemo is coming out of my goddamn nose. I don't want to explain that at the ER. It was a, she was really sweet, too. That's what got me. Never would have thought in a million years. You know what you could have done is she Richard geared me. <laughs> I would rather come. I would, I would I'd go out into the woods and commit suicide first. <laughs> Before you Richard geared you? Oh, yeah. That's a guinea pig, Scott. That's not even a gerbil. Don't judge. Just get it out. <laughs> it's, it, it feels scared. <laughs> And so am I. So, like, do you have some grain or some pellets or some food or some sort? Carrots? Lure that fucker back out. Carrots? It's not a donkey. Oh, don't get me started on the donkey. So there's this one chick, right? Oh, my and God. And we were on a farm. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm done. I'm so done. <laughs> so, anyways, the nature of Coleman's actions fell into the classic definition of a disorganized serial killer. He didn't spend time stalking his victims. They were all victims of opportunity. When he needed to lash out, he simply did so on whoever happened to be in the vicinity. Coleman didn't use any particular weapon when it came to incapacitating or murdering his victim of choice. And he also didn't adhere to any specific ritual when he carried through with his violence. That's a low-flying... Are they looking for you, Scott? Are you sure it's not the... That's a helicopter. Mexicans mowing? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's a helicopter. Fuck. Yeah, there's nobody out there. They found me. (laughs) I knew. I know what a helicopter sounds like. It doesn't sound like a lawnmower. I knew what me and that girl did with that donkey was illegal. (laughs) I told her that. (laughs) Sick fucker. Son of a bitch. Going to prison next on Brutal Nation. Yeah. So the theory into the catalyst for his multi-state crime spree was due to the fact that he had nothing to lose. Okay. After that in grand jury indictment, after all, he was already wanted for murder. Uh, the first aggravated rape and murder he had committed was in the, was in a state that held the death penalty. Um, it's believed that he was the final, this was the final straw and pushed him over the edge especially since he had been walking a fine line of madness prior to all of that. Uh, The grand jury in Wisconsin indicted Coleman for murder while he and Brown were on the run. As a matter of fact, he was put on the FBI's radar. Um, And according to Mary Thornton's article in the Washington Post on July 12th, the same day Coleman was placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, Although the FBI's 10 most wanted list usually contains just 10 names, he was the first to be added as number 11 because of his extreme violence and the frequency of his crimes. Now, Thorne's article says Coleman was the first to be to hit number 11 on the list. However, the FBI said later that he was actually the 10th to hit number 11. Perhaps it was a typo in her article. Um we may never know what truly motivated Coleman and Brown on July 5th of 1984 to embark on their spree of violence. 
However, by the time they got together and rented their apartment in Gary, Indiana, Coleman was already wanted by the authorities. A warrant had been issued for her arrest on May 31st, and the investigators had actually brought Brown in on June 1st to interrogate her. They wanted to find out what she knew about June 1st. Oh, I don't remember what I was saying there. They actually wanted to know what she knew about the day he disappeared. Okay. Now, um, their first victims were Tamika and Annie. Now, Coleman's first warrant was issued in Wisconsin on May 31st, 1984. That's after he attacked his friend's daughter. The very next day, he went underground. Four days later, on June 5th, Deborah joined him and they decided to hole up in Gary, Indiana. They stayed hidden there for approximately two weeks before they set out looking for their prey. On June 18th, as they were roaming around the neighborhood, they came across seven-year-old Tamika Turks, who was on her way to a nearby candy store with her nine-year-old aunt, Annie. Annie was found later that day after she had been viciously raped and beaten. Thankfully, she survived, but Tamika was still missing. The next day, Tamika's little body was found tucked into a wooded area in Gary. Uh, Her autopsy report revealed that she had been brutally raped. And if the rape of a seven-year-old child wasn't bad enough, since the medical examiner had determined her cause of death was due to someone stomping on her little chest. Um, Later, nine-year-old Anna revealed the brutality she and Tamika had suffered. According to her, Coleman and Brown forced her to watch while they held Tamika down on the ground. That was when Brown reached down, covered the child's nose and mouth with her hand, while Coleman just jumped on her chest and face repeatedly. He continued his assault until he cracked her ribs, which then punctured all of her vital organs, killing her. After that, Coleman and Brown forced Annie to have sex with both of them. When they finished their sexual assault, they began beating her on the head. And Annie, to this day, suffers from the lasting effects of that assault, Um, Her mother, Mary Hilliard, reports that Annie frequently gets severe headaches, which cause her to begin screaming and crying. Um, When this happens, she grabs at her head as if somebody is beating her. And after she was found and treated at the hospital, the family received a bill from the hospital that totaled more than $15,000. Granted, their insurance did cover most of it, but the balance was still more than they could afford. Um, Tamika's mother, Laverne, couldn't stand to live in Gary any longer. The memories she had of Tamika there were too painful for her to endure. She chose to move up to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and she never looked back. Mary, who was also Laverne's mother, and Tamika's grandmother, um, said, Laverne's gone, Tamika's missing, my daughter's having these problems, our family will never be the same. Um, shortly after Tamika's death, Mary attempted to commit suicide as she felt the pain was too much for her to bear. Um, then we have Donna Williams. Okay. So we had seven and a nine year old, right? 
Right. Okay. The very same day that the authorities found Tamika's body, 25-year-old Donna Williams' parents reported her missing and her car stolen. It was an entire week later when her car was found in Detroit, abandoned on the side of the road. Inside the car, the authorities found fake IDs with Brown's picture. When people living in the area were questioned, they stated the car appeared on June 19th and the same day that Donna, that was the same day Donna went missing. It hadn't been moved since it had been parked there. The discovery of the car led authorities in four states to launch a manhunt since they were assuming Donna had been murdered. Uh, Keep in mind, her body had not been found yet. Um, It was only two days after Williams disappeared, so that was June 9th, so this is June 21st, when someone in Detroit reported another woman was kidnapped by a man and a woman. The same person later identified photos of Coleman and Brown as the kidnappers. What are you doing? Any business. Okay. The woman was lucky enough to escape the pair by making a choice that may very well have killed her. Now, on June 21st, when she w- they carjacked her, um, they forced her to drive them. They were forcing her to drive them to Toledo, Ohio. As soon as the woman saw an opportunity, she purposely drove into head-on traffic. Thankfully, she survived. Smart, actually. I know. I mean, okay, and, and I say smart because of this right here. If you go with them, there is a, about a 100% chance. You're not going to live. You're going to die. Yeah. If you drive into head-on uh, into head-on traffic, you've got a 50-50 chance. Yeah. 50%. It's a lot better odds than 100% that you're going to die. Right. No, I, I hear you. So, unfortunately, Coleman and Brown also survived the accident and managed to evade the authorities. They found some good Samaritans who didn't know about their crimes and took pity on them because of their injuries. After befriending that couple, Coleman and Brown turned on them by robbing them of their money and stealing their car. FBI Special Agent John Anthony released a statement a short time later. We've come to the conclusion that Coleman and Brown are staying with people they meet. They spend a day or two with the people, get a little money gambling with them, and then assault and rob them and steal their car. Okay? Their next crime wave. Crime wave. Wow, Elmer Fudd. (laughs) I know, right? In the crime wave, (laughs) they were looking for a wascally rabbit. Ah, 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 ah. Hey, yo. (laughs) Hit Detroit. Okay, Coleman and Brown succeeded in eluding police while they were in Detroit, even while they carried out a relatively small but violent wave of crime. After the robbery and kidnapping of a 28-year-old woman there, more warrants were issued for their arrest. Then on June 28th, seven days later, Coleman and Brown attacked the Good Samaritans. The elderly couple was from Dearborn Heights. Two days after that, on June 30th, they robbed two more men in Detroit. Um, When the deadly couple left Detroit, they had authorities in Illinois, Wisconsin, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, and the FBI on their trail. Even though Coleman was following a very disorganized pattern when it came to the murders, there were similarities. In each case involved a stolen car. The vehicle was found approximately 12 hours later And that's why when the police weren't able to find a 1975 Buick 
which involved a 55 year old woman and the person she was beat that she was with being beaten and robbed. Um, the police suspected with good reason that Coleman and Brown had chosen to leave the Detroit area. Okay. Um, unfortunately, when the two fugitives arrived in Toledo, their crimes picked up where they had left off by the, by that time on July 11th, the authorities received a reported a report stating a body had been discovered near the Wayne state university in the abandoned house. When investigators arrived on the scene, they did discover the extremely decomposed remains of Donna Williams. By the state of decomposition, it was obvious she had been murdered shortly after she had been abducted and taken hostage to Detroit. Sadly, when it comes to Donna's murder, her family may never have closure, both legally and psychologically. As the authorities from the five states got together to figure out the best way to proceed with legal action against Coleman and Brown, they opted not to try the pair for murdering Donna. Perhaps this will explain why. A statement was issued by the Lake County, Indiana prosecutor by the name of Jack Crawford. And then I go, no, not the guy from Silence of the Lambs. Um, so I was thinking of Yeah, it. I know. Did he talk to Clarice? <laughs> yeah, right? Tell me. Were the lambs still screaming? Considering Jack didn't say that to her. No, but Hannibal did. He did. Hannibal the cannibal. He did. No, um, this is what Jack Crawford said. He said, we chose to go with the strongest cases against the two that would result in the death penalty. Since Donna was killed in Michigan... The prosecutors knew the death penalty wasn't an option because Michigan does not carry it. So Donna's parents, Robert and Zanetta Williams, issued a statement about their daughter's murder three years after Coleman and Brown were arrested. According to them, they weren't even really concerned about the punishment the two killers wouldn't face in regards to Donna's death. Zanetta said, I will always wonder what exactly happened. In other words, she just wants to know how and why their daughter was killed. Um, then their path, the path of their storm hits Toledo. On July 5th, Coleman and Brown hit the next town in the path, Toledo, Ohio. Upon arriving there, Coleman managed to befriend a woman by the name of Virginia Temple. She was also the mother of several children. A short time later, Virginia's relatives couldn't get in touch with her, so they called the police. When the authorities arrived at their house, at her house, they entered to find Virginia's youngest children alive, but they were alone and very frightened. Detectives continued to search the premises, and they located the remains of Virginia and her nine-year-old daughter, Rochelle. Coleman and Brown had strangled the two of them and stuffed their bodies into a crawl space. Um, the very same nature that Coleman and Brown murdered Virginia and Rochelle, they broke into the home of Dorothy and Frank Duvendak. Shut up, Scott. Who also These lived names, in Toledo. Jesus I Christ, know, right? Man. Who also lived in Toledo. When that couple was found, they had their wrists bound with electrical cords that had been cut from the wall. Thankfully, Dorothy and Frank were alive. But the fugitives had stolen all of their money, some of their jewelry, and taken their car. Later, when another victim's body was discovered, Dorothy's watch had been placed underneath. 
Um, it was later de- that day when Coleman and Brown went to the home of Reverend Millard. Okay, I can't even say this delicately. Reverend Millard Gay and his oh wife my Catherine God. in Dayton. Wait a minute, hold on, hold on. Was he Catholic? No. I'm asking for a friend. For Which a friend? That, fr- that friend is me. That friend is you? That friend is me. I was going to say, a friend, Scott. <laughs> no. Um, the pair stayed with this new couple for a little while and even went to church services held on July 9th with them. For some reason, Coleman and Brown didn't even attempt to harm Millard and Catherine. Because he was gay. On July 10th, the gays took the murders couple <laughs> to downtown Always pick Cin- it on the gays. <laughs> to Cincinnati and dropped them off there. At WKRP. <laughs> Nobody knows what that means. Okay, look. If you're too young to know what WKRP in Cincinnati was, look that shit up because it was fucking hilarious. It was hilarious shit. For its time. And uh, <laughs> if you don't think it's funny, well, you can go, uh, you can turkey drop yourself. That's what you can do. Dude, you can WKRP turkey. was even funnier than Andy Dick and um, what's his name <laughs> in news radio? Phil Hartman. Phil, yeah. Oh, yeah. WKRP was yeah. freaking awesome. Yeah. So anyways, um, hold on. There we go. I had to open up Crack it, baby. Shut up. Two days later, on July 12th, Coleman and Brown were stalking. This is a neighborhood called Over the Rhine in Cincinnati when suddenly 15-year-old Tony's story disappeared. Her parents suffered eight days of agony before their daughter's remains were found. Under Tony's body, the authorities discovered Virginia's stolen bracelet under her body. As soon as Tony was reported missing on July 12th, the FBI put Coleman on their 10 most wanted list. He was a special addition to the list since they placed him in the 11th spot. And according to the FBI, since the induction of the list in the 50s, Coleman had the distinction of being the 10th person to merit being added and the 11th most wanted person as the 11th most wanted person in the United States. Holy shit. I know, right? After Tony's murder on July 13th, Coleman and Brown rode a pair of bicycles to Norwood at approximately 9.30 a.m. Now, this is just a side note, but when I read that part, I thought about the episode of I Love Loosely when they take the bicycle ride into Paris. Oh, yeah. And they get stopped at Border Patrol. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I thought of. That's what they need. They need Border Patrol. That's right. Stop those blacks. I almost fucking spit out my energy drink. <laughs> I love doing so, that to you. Yeah. Before 12.30 p.m., they stole Harry Walters' car. He was so hairy. Thankfully, Harry had only been knocked unconscious. However, the pair had chosen to rape Marlene, Harry's wife, before they beat her to death. When Harry testified later, he stated that he and his wife had gone up with the couple after they expressed interest in purchasing a camper he owned. When Coleman and Brown arrived, Coleman began using a wooden candlestick to attack Harry. Clue. After- I, I, was, I was just going to say, <laughs> it was Colonel Mustard with the candlestick in the library. It was Alton Coleman with a wooden candlestick. After completing an autopsy on Merlene, the medical examiner reported she had been bludgeoned as many, as many as 20, perhaps 25 times during the assault. Um, there was also a significant amount of evidence of the crime scene itself. In the living room, detectives found shards of glass from a soda bottle. 
Upon further examinations, forensics found a distinct fingerprint that belonged to Coleman. In the basement, there were bloody footprints belonging to two separate pairs of shoes. They also found two bicycles, some clothes, and shoes that didn't belong to the Walters. However, they had shoes, money, and jewelry stolen in addition to their red Plymouth Reliant. Now, on July 15th, two days later, authorities found the Plymouth in Kentucky. Coleman and Brown had left it at the scene when they abducted a Williamsburg college professor by the name of Olean Carmichael Jr. What the flying <laughs> fuck is with these names? Did you know. pick this one because everybody's name is just so utterly fucked up? Is that why you did this? I want to find a story where everybody's name... It's just so fucked up that he wouldn't even believe it's a real thing. <laughs> no, actually, I didn't. So after kidnapping him, they decided to drive back north to Ohio. Only was bound and locked in the trunk on their ride. On July 17th, Coleman and Brown abandoned the stolen car in Dayton. When the authorities arrived on the scene, they discovered only in the trunk where the couple had put him. Thankfully... They arrived in time to rescue him alive. You know what I was thinking of when you said his name? Ovaltine? No. Olaine. 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 <laughs> the Dolly Parton song, Jolene. Yeah, I got it. I Please don't stuff me in the trunk because you can. <laughs> You're so stupid. From there, Coleman and Brown went back to the gays. <laughs> Miller Gay. Reverend Miller Gay. <laughs> Hello, Reverend. Okay. And they used guns to accost them. When the couple arrived, Reverend Gay actually recognized Coleman and knew he was wanted by the FBI. According to them, he straight up asked the man, why you want to do us like this, like that, like this? In response to his question, Coleman stated, I'm not going to kill you, but we generally kill them where we go. God damn. What I the know. Fuck? When Coleman and Brown left, they took the Reverend's car and drove back to Evanston, Illinois. They stopped at Indianapolis to steal another vehicle. And this one was owned by a 75 year old man by the name of Eugene Scott. And unfortunately, they chose to kill Eugene before they stole his car. Now, Earlier, I mentioned the prosecuting authorities from the five states met together to determine how they were going to proceed with the charges against Coleman and Brown. Aside from being them opting not to proceed with the charges in relation to Donna's murder, they made some other decisions. One of those decisions was choosing not to proceed with trying Coleman and Brown for three more murders they had committed at that time. Two of the charges were in relation to the murder of Virginia and her nine-year-old daughter, Rochelle, because those also happened in Michigan. The other charge they left off the table at that time was the murder of Eugene. It's believed he was the last victim to be murdered by Coleman and Brown since the authorities discovered his stolen vehicle in Evanston, Illinois, where the two were finally arrested. Now, three other homicides tied to the pair will also probably not ever be tried. The slaying of 77-year-old Eugene Scott of Indianapolis and the killings of Virginia Temple and her 10-year-old, excuse me, 9-year-old daughter in Toledo. Why do I say 10? Um... Uh, Scott was suspected of being their last murder victim because his car was in Evanston. I already said that. 
From Toledo, the pair continued south, stopping long enough in Cincinnati to murder Marlene Waters, who was found bludgeoned to death in the basement of her home. Waters' husband was badly beaten in the attack and left for dead. Coleman and Brown stole the Waters' car and headed to Kentucky, where they abandoned the car in a cornfield. Oh, my God. From the day Coleman and Brown abducted and murdered Tamika, their rampage spanned from Wisconsin to Kentucky, back up to Illinois. In less than a month, the two had committed a slew of felonies approximately every other day. Hey, man, go big or go home. Yeah, the longest wrecking (laughs) resting period they took between victims was about 24 hours. Because everybody needs a snack and sleep. You know what? I was going to say, snap into a Slim Jim there. That's right, man. (laughs) The whole murderous spree started from the day Coleman raped and murdered the seven-year-old daughter of a friend in Kenosha. By the time they were finally apprehended in Evanston, Illinois, it was only 53 days. In that 53-day span, Alton Coleman and his willing partner, Deborah Brown, had left a trail of destruction behind them. They committed 14 armed robberies, three kidnappings, approximately seven brutal rapes, and eight vicious murders. Um, Now, sometime after Coleman and Brown had murdered Eugene, they decided to return to Waukegan, Wisconsin. Their crime spree had gathered a lot of negative attention all over the country, not to mention Coleman being put on the 10 most wanted list. 11 most wanted list. Well, that's what I say. When he was added to the list as number 11, (laughs) he joined the ranks with other notable fugitives. Two of those fugitives were James Earl Ray, you know, the guy who shot MLK. Uh Uh-huh. And H. Rap Brown, R.A.P. Brown. He was known for his association with association in the black power movement in the 60s, as well as being the minister of justice for the Black Panther Party. And laying down the mad rhymes in the mad times. Wow, wow. That's right, man. (laughs) Don't ever do that again. Oh, come on. You like the rap that I sent you uh, via text. I told my mom, I said, how dare he take something I am so passionate about and turn it against me. (laughs) Yeah. Outside of Coleman's own family... He and Brown had very few friends left to stand by them. That's why it didn't come as a surprise to everyone when one of Coleman's acquaintances saw them walking around Evanston. He quickly called the police. The authorities had already had a heavier presence in that area since Coleman was known to have some contacts there. He and Brown had also rented a small apartment there right before they fled to Gary. Law enforcement also knew for some reason the pair was very desperate, and that's why they took extreme caution. That's why extreme caution was taken in in the arresting process. Now, after learning the location of Coleman and Brown, two undercover cops were actually lucky enough to spot them at one of the local parks. They radioed in, They radioed the location in, and it didn't take long for the local, state, and federal authorities to close in. It was July 20th, 1984, right before 12 p.m., and Coleman and Brown had stopped to sit in the bleachers to watch a picket game of basketball in Mason Park. Man, they were just out on a nice little stroll, walking hand in hand, saying how much they love each other, you know, and how much they love murdering and raping, apparently. But, yeah, then they go to watch a game, and they get arrested. Okay. Sad times. 
It was there on the west side of Evanston (laughs) where the fugitives were calmly being approached by several officers. When Coleman looked up and saw the plainclothes officers, as well as some uniform cops walking towards him, he calmly stood up and walked away. The officers noticed that he was wearing a torn yellow shirt and he had cut his hair. He no longer had the long jerry curl as the pictures had shown. They also marveled about the nonchalant attitude he displayed as he walked away from them. When the officers caught up to Coleman and confronted him, he surrendered and the whole thing went down very peacefully. Check this out. Perhaps it went down so peacefully because Coleman was ready, ready to talk, try to talk his way out of being arrested. As soon as he was in handcuffs, he told the officer who actually arrested him, you spank got, me. That's you, what he said. You got the wrong man. No, he said spank me. I said, well, why you got the cuffs out? I got yeah. a ball gag in my back pocket. Whatever. He then gave them two different aliases when they asked him his name. When they arrested Brown, she had a loaded revolver in her possession. As the authorities put the handcuffs on her, she told them her name was Denise Johnson. Even though they both had some sort of weapon on their person, neither one tried to draw them. Later on, an 11-year-old who was present and witnessed the whole thing go down was interviewed. He, said, he stated, quote, they look like they did on TV. The capture was quick and easy. Um, this is good to know since there were a bunch of children present. Um, now, I can stop there or you want me to go on? Mm, keep going. Oh, my God. Yeah. Mm. Would you like me to proceed with my presentation, Scott? Oh, yeah, man. He had a Jared Curl, man. How do you how do you arrest a brother with a Jared Curl? Damn. I got the wrong man, motherfuckers. I don't know. Mess with a man with a Jared Curl. Yeah. You know, since you... Thank you kindly. No, it's my puffer. It's got kind of oh. fluid buildup. <laughs> My puffer needs to be blown. <laughs> Shut I was, up. I was telling your mom that just the other day. That my puffer need blown? That my puffer needs to get blown. I'm sure she doesn't want to blow your puffer. That's not what she said. Uh, okay. Actually, her exact words were, ah. Are you finished? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Aww. So. <laughs> The authorities knew that they had some holes in their investigation. Big holes. I'm going to sit over here until you're done. I'm done. Okay. Big holes. Exactly. See, that's why I only start my sentence partially now. However, somehow they also fully expected the whole ordeal to end in Evanston. They just didn't know when. After Coleman and Brown were arrested, neighbors in the area were interviewed by the media. They stated that three weeks before the arrest, they had been hearing the couple would eventually show up around there. One thing that was obvious is they they were as happy as law enforcement who managed to eat up the media attention. Um, One of the local neighbors said the whole community was aware of Coleman and, quote, he wasn't going to be able to come in here and snatch anybody. We were waiting for him. That's right, man. We knew about his Jerry Curl. He ain't coming in here snatching up our kids, motherfucker. His mama didn't raise him right. That's a problem. Damn. Shit-ass motherfucker checking with goddamn Jerry Curl shit. And shit. Go on, girl. Go on. I'm listening. Go on with your bad self. Go on with your bad self. Okay. 
While the residents around the area of Mason Park stated it looked when Coleman and Brown were arrested that the man was extremely tired and practically emaciated. It was their opinion that two fugitives had simply, quote, run out of steam, which I can see. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. One officer was practically thinking the same thing when he wondered if by some chance they subconsciously wanted to be arrested. By the amount of evidence and clear fingerprints that Coleman himself had left at each crime scene, FBI agents speculated that it was as if he was almost making a conscious effort to leave his calling card. Um, ultimately, it was those exact fingerprints that took Coleman, uh, that took Alton Coleman down. Uh, from the time the handcuffs were slapped on his wrist, he kept telling whoever would listen that the officers had the wrong guy. Uh, despite these claims, the Evanston PD positively identified him as the man they arrested in Mason Park. They managed to match Coleman's fingerprints exactly with the guy who had left clear fingerprints at the crime scenes. Not just one crime scene either. They matched the prints left in Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, and Kentucky. My brother, my brother, my brother and my sister. <laughs> Man, motherfuckers, they make these things called gloves. <laughs> motherfuckers might want to start using that shit. Just saying. <laughs> gloves? Gloves, motherfucker. <laughs> so when Coleman and Brown, when Coleman and Brown's fingerprints were examined by the FBI, they concluded that Evanson had the right suspects in custody, and those suspects were, in fact, Alton Coleman and Deborah Denise Brown. Now, when the Authorities finally had Coleman and Brown behind bars. The state, as well as the federal prosecuting teams, had to meet up. They sorted through all the charges and crimes the two had committed and figure out which ones to move forward with and which ones to hold off on. Obviously, they, ha they would follow through with prosecuting the pair in the states that, would, that could seek the highest punishment. So those states would prosecute first. Therefore, they made the decision not to prosecute in Michigan and Wisconsin unless they were acquitted and received lighter sentences in the other states. This decision was made because those two states didn't have the death penalty. Now, since Lake County DA Fred Foreman had faced Coleman in court before when the man was able to wiggle his way out of it, he said, we want him first. I've been in court with this man before, and I want to bring him back. As soon as the handcuffs were on Coleman and Brown, the authorities separated them. Deborah was considered the most wanted woman in the country. She was read her rights immediately, and she actually chose to invoke them. She said she wanted an attorney when, then after that, and she kept her mouth shut. Okay? Despite her invoking her rights... When they were all at the Evanston station, the agent who read her, her, read her the rights kept asking her questions. The questions he asked pertained to the fact she had documents in her possession that weren't in her name. Then an Evanston detective came in and started asking her questions. He wanted to ask her about the attack committed in that jurisdiction, especially since she and Coleman were the major suspects. Is it, it wasn't until they were taking her to the federal lockup in Chicago that she actually began to talk. However, since she was actually inside the federal building, 
and she was read her rights again, she again said she would not sign the waiver. However, she offered them a compromise. She said, I'm not going to sign to invoke my rights, but if I start talking to you and I ask to stop, we have to stop. Okay. Then the floodgates of her mouth opened. Uh, she spent the next two and a half hours telling them every detail about the crime spree she and Coleman had went on. Basically, she confessed everything they had, everything they did in the short time they terrorized the Midwest. And the weird thing is, after two and a half hours, she talked about everything. She again asked them if she could speak to an attorney. After two and a half hours. Okay. That time, they didn't ask her another question before they got her an attorney. When she went on trial, it's no surprise her attorney tried to claim the authorities had violated her, first, her Fifth Amendment rights and she had asked for an attorney and they continued to ask her questions. The rights offered to everyone against incriminating themselves. However, he based this on the fact they continued to ask their questions after she requested an, an attorney. Unfortunately, the judge agreed that her rights were violated. So the confession she gave the detective in Evanston was thrown out. Okay. However, the good news is the one she gave to the feds who questioned her in Chicago was valid for the murder of Tamika Turks. Brown received the death penalty. Now, when she was convicted and sentenced in Cincinnati for those murders, she was again given the death penalty. However, they decided to keep her in Indiana on their death row. Coleman was tried next and he too was convicted of the same murders and received the same death penalty for his actions. He actually, check this out, he actually holds the distinction of not only A, being the 10th man as number 11 on America's most wanted list, Uh he also holds the distinction of being the only man in America to be sentenced to death in three states. Please tell me they put him to death. Um, You'll have to find out. Oh, man, I'm hoping that they fried his Jerry Curl. <laughs> Lit him up without our oil and shit. <laughs> he went up like a Roman candle, motherfucker. They would have done that because that would have meant the fucking electric chair and they had gotten away with him by then. Well, uh, maybe they just doused him with the gasoline and set him on fire. I'm good either way. I'm good. Yeah. So anyways, after all of her appeals, Brown finally received some good news for her in January of 1991. That's when the Ohio governor chose to commute her sentence from death to two life sentences. His reason for this decision was based on her IQ test. He claimed the results indicated she she was too developmentally disabled and it was the way Coleman dominated her that controlled her actions. Basically, he said she had a sex slave relationship with a man. However, at the time, Indiana still had their stay. Later that same year, in August, the Court of Appeals of Indiana made their ruling. They said that when the trial court allowed her confession into evidence, they were correct in doing so. Apparently, even though she asked for an attorney several times while at the Evanston station... That didn't apply to the feds. But the time they advised over rights there, the confession was separated by space, time, and subject matter. So that confession from her first request for an attorney was done properly. When the FBI agents read her the Miranda rights and she proceeded to give her confession, 
the court was within their rights to allow that confession into evidence. The bizarre thing is, though, Brown did it to herself. When they were transferring her from the police department to the federal lockup, she chose to have a conversation with the authorities. When she began asking them, where am I going? What are you charging me with? She herself created the loophole a loophole that ultimately led to her death sentence and potentially her execution. <laughs> That's I know. Awesome. Isn't that fucked up? Look how smart I am. Yeah. I'm going to confuse everybody. Oh, no, no. No. The best thing you could have done was shut the fuck up. That's exactly. what you could have done. Just Once shut you your say, I want an attorney, don't say another word. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't matter where you are, who you're with. Yeah. So upon hearing this ruling, a lot of criminal defense attor- attorneys were livid across the U.S., one even gave an interview with the Indianapolis Star newspaper and said the Fifth Amendment was slowly having the life squeezed out of it. Daniel Toomey, the attorney who was assigned to argue the Brown case with the Court of Appeals, said, if you ask anything, you create an opening the state can drive a truck through, referring to when the suspects started to ask the questions. Um, at that time, Brown was still scheduled to be executed in Indiana, and she was the only woman in that state on death row. However, in 2018, she managed to get that sentence commuted to 140 years. Now, Alton Brown, you ready? Tell me about Alton Brown. Now, in August of 2000, the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in a capital murder case out of Virginia stated that defendants in a murder case are entitled to legal representation that is constitutionally adequate. Upon hearing this, the attorneys for Coleman jumped into action. They promptly filed their request for relief based on the high court's ruling. That's when the U.S. Supreme Court ordered the Indiana Supreme Court to review Coleman's death sentence and reconsider it. According to Coleman's allegations, when it came to his trial sentencing phase, he was the victim of inadequate counsel. That's right, man. (laughs) Yeah. Tell him, brother. He claims that his attorney failed to present any mitigating factors, factors that may have spared him from potential execution, especially since, as the appeal attorney claims, he had a troubled childhood and a diagnosed personality disorder, and a brain dysfunction. Um, they were hoping to get somewhere with the, this appeal, since under direct appeal, his conviction and sentence had already been held up by the Indiana Supreme Court. In response to the Chief Justice of the Indiana Supreme Court wrote, Given these aggravating circumstances, even had his counsel presented the evidence of Coleman's impoverishment and abuse, we see little likelihood the jury recommendation or the trial judge sentence would have been different. Okay? So, Beings Coleman had been sentenced to death in three separate states. The chances of his life being spared are considerably slim at best. For instance... If Indiana does commute his death sentence, then Ohio can invoke the death penalty ruling on his case. Then, if by chance Ohio also chooses not to uphold the death sentence, Kentucky has their shot at it. Chances are he will face execution in one of those three states, right? Um, as it turns out, on February, April, on Friday, February, April, I'm sorry, on Friday, April 26, 2002, there we go, uh, 46-year-old 
in Southern Ohio Correctional Facility located near Lucasville, Alton, Alton Coleman was executed by lethal injection. His death sentence was carried out at precisely 10 a.m. Um, Coleman did make a valiant effort right up until the very end to fight for his life. Even the appeals that managed to make it to the U.S. Supreme Court failed. Over a closed-circuit broadcast, he tried to reiterate his claim of ineffective counsel. However, he took it a step further. He said that if he was executed, it would violate the cruel and unusual punishment prohibition. Coleman even tried to claim that the jury in his trial were racially biased. I agree, man. They saw his Jerry Curl, and they were like, Psh, that nice Jerry Curl, man. They said, man. bitch, please. They said, bitch, please. That's too nice. We got to kill him because he got that nice Jerry Curl and shit. I can't get my fro to do that. Damn. I need to see you with a Jerry Curl and a fro. I'm going to get an Afro wig. <laughs> And then to your mom. With a pick in it? That's right. Then to your mom, I'll be an aphrodisiac. (laughs) I knew you were going to say something stupid. (laughs) Ta-da, I don't disappoint. So they wouldn't miss their opportunity to see the man who killed their loved one executed. The relatives of the Illinois and Indiana victims were offered a rare opportunity. They were allowed to access a secure television link that allowed them to witness the event. Um, Norwood, Ohio is where he beat 44-year-old Marlene Walters to death on July 13th, 1984. So when he was executed, her husband Harry and two of their sons-in-law were able to watch the execution live at the death house. Coleman was the third person to be executed in the state of Ohio since they reinstated the death penalty. And that's probably the reason why it was a big deal when it came to the media. The Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections even reported there were 43 media outlets that had applied for their credentials to cover the execution, and that included television stations and newspapers from Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky. Um, Coleman went all out in regards to his last meal. He actually, oh my God, I would love to have this as my last meal. He requested to have filet mignon covered with sautéed mushrooms, some fried chicken breasts, cornbread, as well as biscuits smothered in brown gravy, some french fries. That's a carb fest. Some french fries, broccoli smothered in cheese sauce, a salad with french dressing, some onion rings, collard greens, a slice of sweet potato pie with whipped topping, a bowl of butter pecan ice cream, and a cherry Coke to wash it all down. Damn you go, boy. You know what? I'm surprised he didn't order a diet cherry Coke. <laughs> That's like ordering a supersized Big Mac meal with a diet Coke, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, when we look at this, his case has a distinction of it took just over 6,000 days. Okay. Coleman exhausted practically every means available to him to get off Ohio's Mansfield Correctional Institution's death row. I'm not surprised, and nobody else should be either. In the 16-plus years, Coleman sat in a cell waiting for the state to execute him. The cards described him as a model inmate. They also said he basked in the attention the media bestowed upon him 
as he continued to feature his crime spree. He also helped put cornrows in people's hair <laughs> and give them Jared curls, too. I used to be able to do cornrows. Jesus fucking Christ. White <laughs> chicks should never have fucking cornrows. I didn't say I could put it Whatever, just continue with your story. I used story. to be able to do them myself. Jesus Christ, and you're I did white. have cornrows many times. Oh my God! See, because you're white and you want to pretend like you're black, which to me is racist. No, it's because it made for easier. No, it's because you have that one black friend. That's what it is. <laughs> you're so stupid. Your one and only black friend, racist. That is not true. Can't stop laughing at you though. Whatever, leader of the KKK, <laughs> keep going. <laughs> Pretty soon you're going to be all against gays, too. Well, I have one gay friend that I sort of know that I met once. So, obviously, I can't be anti-gay. You know, your cousin just called me the other day. (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) And he said, (laughs) Tammy. (laughs) No. Um... Let's see. The attention the media dedicated to letting their listeners and readers know it was more, he was practically the first condemned inmate in decades who would practically be executed in Ohio. Okay? Because like Oregon, they didn't execute very often. Um, Ow, my eyeball. Um, When it came to granting interviews, he preferred the female reporters over the males. Yeah, me too, because they like his Jerry Curl, man. Yeah. If I had he, a Jerry Curl, I want all the ladies to see it. They'd be like, damn, that nice curl, man. You going to get on the soul train now? On the soul train. <laughs> so whatever. He often smooth-talked his way into convincing the reporters who wanted to interview him to give him money to buy his commissary or if he was convincing enough, they try to get him access to porn magazines. Yeah. Yeah. We already know how long it can take for the state to execute prisoners. You and I have talked about this. That's Too the goddamn case, long. Even if the inmate chooses not to file any appeals, Ohio is one of the states that automatically appeals the death sentence as soon as the verdict is handed down. The reason for this, quote, direct appeal is to go over the court transcripts to make sure the prosecutors and the judges didn't make any errors. They want to make sure the prosecutors. I already said that (laughs) if they did, it's considered an incorrect verdict and sentence. And in Coleman's case, his direct appeal was reviewed by the trial court and the Ohio Supreme Court and the ultimate state appeals in and the Intermediate State Appeals Court. Okay, number one, they already made a mistake at his trial. Why? They didn't kill the motherfucker right there. That is not an error in that the is U.S. An court. Error. That is an error on, the, uh, on a grand scale. On it, Scotty's Court of Appeals? God dang right. It should always go down like this right here because they had all the proof. They had fingerprints. They had DNA. They had everything. Yeah. So, yep. Motherfucker's guilty. Are you guilty? Yeah, man. I'm guilty with my Jared Cronin shit. Boom. You're dead. That's it. That's it. Yeah. The whole trial should have taken under five minutes. Under four and a half, as a matter of fact. Under four and a half. <laughs> under four and a half. So, to give you an idea about how long it takes to complete the direct appeal alone, which is that first appeal, think about this. Coleman was convicted in 1985, right? Within days, the three courts began to review the transcripts. That, a first, appeal wasn't, that first appeal wasn't completed for four years in September of 1989. 
So the second appeal Coleman's appellate attorney submitted was called a post-conviction review. This appeal asked the court to determine if there were any errors outside the trial court. This is designed to see if anything violated his constitutional rights on either a state or federal level. If there were any errors that would also be considered an incorrect verdict, if there were, these errors would also be considered an incorrect verdict and death sentence. Coleman's attorney filed this motion on September in September of 1990 in the Hamilton County, Ohio courts. It took Ohio Supreme court over three years to reject that appeal. Um, all inmates on death row in Ohio are also granted a third appeal on the state level. This is called the Murnahan appeal. And this is where the state reviews the inmates challenges, whether their appellate lawyers ineffective, their appellate lawyers effectively handled the previous two appeals. Can you imagine I mean, it's like, I don't know. It's like they're just cu- creating busy work, right? That's what it sounds like to me. I'm telling you, man. Yeah. I think the way that we handle things right now is bullshit. Yeah. Now, okay, I can understand if, if in this case it was like, hey, look, we really don't have any solid evidence, but we know that we can convince a jury better, you know, to, without a, beyond a reasonable doubt, marginally, right. that this guy's guilty. I can understand, hey... Yeah, let's look deeper into this. But when you have an asshole like this that you've got, and uh, you've got the stockpile of evidence that directly says, and the the best example is people like fucking Carla Hermolkas, and she had your mom call me about her, <laughs> and, uh, and and that asshole Bernardo. You know, um, you have this. You, you you physically have every bit of evidence to prove one hundred percent. Like there's right. not even there's not even a little bit of a doubt. Like, well, maybe no, it's one hundred percent. Literally, she goes like this. Here's what we have. You guys take a look at this real quick, and they look at it. Yeah, that motherfucker's guilty, and execute him right there in the court. You should be in a little box right. and walk over. You take a gun because lethal injection a lethal injection costs money. You got to pay a doctor. Shoot the shoot that shoot him right in his fucking cocksucker. In his fucking Jerry curl. Right in his fucking Jerry curl. Curl. <laughs> Splatter his brains, have the janders come in with a squeegee, mop him up. Yeah. Quick and easy. Under four and a half minutes, by the way, guys. Under four and a half minutes. Yeah. So in regards to that aspect of the appeal, it took approximately six months because it ended on August 3rd, 1994. Six months too long. Yeah. So by this time, though, it had already been almost 10 years. Okay. Now that all of Coleman's appeals on the state level were exhausted, he began filing appeals on the federal level. The first one was his habeas corpus appeal, and this challenges whether or not federal constitutional rights were violated at all in his sentencing. My constitutional rights were violated by this asshole just being alive for that long. Right? His attorneys filed this action in December of 84. The U.S. District Courts, located in Cincinnati, didn't reject this appeal until February of 1998. Coleman's attorneys then submitted the appeal that challenges the lower court's ruling in the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals on May, in May of 98. It took the appellate court two years for this court to review the briefs filed by the state and prisoner. Finally, on December 5th, 2000, the appellate court allowed the state and defend, defendant attorneys to argue each other before the three-judge panel. It now it's been more than 15 years since the jury convicted Coleman. It took this three-judge panel four more 
I don't know what, oh, more than four months to review the arguments before they rejected it in March of 2001. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court finally denied Coleman's attorney's request for them to review rulings made by the lower federal court on October 15th of 2001, and that's when the Ohio Supreme Court was finally allowed to schedule his execution date. They chose April 26th. Um, this didn't mean Coleman was finished with any efforts to prevent his execution. After that execution date is scheduled, the process for state clemency begins. What's that? Oh, I know. Um... This hearing is set before the Ohio Parole Board, and this is the process where Coleman's attorney actually tries to convince them that he was mentally incompetent and somewhat apologizes for his actions. After the parole board hears this, they decide whether or not that he deserves to receive clemency for the, from the governor. Thankfully, they rejected his pleas for that. Um, awesome. So almost the second Governor Taft rejected the clemency, Coleman's attorneys went to the federal court again. This time it was to claim the clemency process on the state level is flawed. And the district court and the appeals court quickly rejected this suit. Even in the final days prior to April 26, Coleman's attorneys tried numerous times with different arguments with the U.S. Supreme Court trying to explain why the inmate should not be put to death. During the 14 days that Coleman had left to live, his attorneys submitted six petitions to the high court. Each one was rejected with no explanation, which is not unusual. Um, each court Coleman filed an appeal or petition with could see no reason for sparing his life. After all, he didn't think twice before killing all of his victims. The Hamilton County Common Pleas Judge, Rachel, Rich Nyhouse, said it all with this statement. I sentenced him and knowing this day has come, well, I got a bit a queasy feeling. But if there was anyone who was exhibit one in an argument for the death penalty, it is Alton Coleman. Okay. How the hell? Where did it go? Where is Oh, that's all I had. I didn't have questions. I was like, where are my questions? But I didn't have them. <laughs> I had to get up and do some busy work because my legs were cramping. I know. So anyways, so that being said, I mean, because we've heard that in the last couple of some episodes we've done, right? We heard it in the Norris Bitteker case. Right. We heard it in the Cesar Barone case. Yeah, we did. We're hearing it now in the Alton Coleman case. If anybody deserves the death penalty, this is it. Um, so I think we should make with a chop chop with it. Like seriously, yeah. we just we chop, spend chop. we spend so much time and money sitting there trying to do Give, the right thing. Yeah, these assholes. Well, not only that is we're offering them a luxury they did not offer their victims. Exactly, and I'm still for serious. And it's going to sound fucked up and like a joke, but I'm serious. The punishment should fit the crime. Right. I think that he should have died by having oh I don't know something like a. Branding iron shoved up his rectum. Or somebody jumping on his chest. Yeah. That's yeah. The punishment at the fucking crime because yeah. he's garbage. Could you, could, you, could you imagine? I mean, put yourself in a seven-year-old's shoes. Could you imagine any brutal way, more brutal way to go? I mean, you're already scared. You've already been raped. You've already been violated. Now somebody's going to hold you down, cover your mouth and your, no, you know, your nose and your mouth while somebody else jumps on you. Yeah, it's fucked up, man. Yeah. So I don't even think I want to ask nature or nurture with him. But 
Nature or nurture, Scott? <laughs> Both. And yeah. let me tell you why. It's in his nature because he's a fucking piece of garbage. But just knowing his family's in there, they're just trying to convict an innocent man. Yeah. Man, man, man. Fuck you. You know what? If you're part of his family and listening to this, fuck you. Yeah. Like, you seriously. should die too. And, and if you don't want to be one of our listeners because I just said that, fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck. Fuck you. Because this guy here raped innocent little fucking kids and an old lady on top of that. You right. know, well, and he constantly ha- was not disconcerting in his victim pool at all. Right. And to sit there and victimize people who are trying to help you out on top of it. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's that's a bucket full of fucked up. Yeah. Fucking garbage, pal, motherfucker. Yeah. And what about this thing that she was just a victim of his, too, about Brown? No, full of shit. Yeah. She was, it, it was proven. She was actively participating in it. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I agree she, with you. She is actually as bad, maybe, maybe even worse than Hermolka, because Hermolka didn't set up for her sister to die. No. Just to get raped. Right. Um, but they both fucking actively participated in heinous crimes against uh, basically defenseless people. Oh, yeah. Well, and then in... Ow. Damn. Sorry, my sock. Um, I didn't get into it in this, but I saw a documentary on it that said that um, when it came to the case of Annie, she actually forced Annie to perform oral sex on her before she allowed Annie to perform oral sex on him. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't tell me that she was not actively involved. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's just fucking disgusting, man. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, that, that's pretty much all. I mean, I didn't write them down this time because I was in a hurry. But, um, yeah, when it came to that, it's like, I need to know what he thinks about her. You know, since her mom said that she was just a victim herself. Okay, and also for uh, her mom, fuck you. You're a cunt. <laughs> yeah. No, I kind of agree with that statement. It's like, you know what? You may rue the day that she met Alton Coleman, but you know what? The world rues the day she was fucking, you know, she rampaged herself. Right. You know, and intimidation or not, if you don't want to do something, especially something that heinous, you're not going to fucking do it. Yeah. You're going to fight your way out of it. And I can understand if you stayed around because you were deathly afraid. Right. Okay, but you're not going to actively participate going, oh, no, you're going to fucking eat my pussy before you fucking blow him. Fuck that. Yeah, no. Yeah, I don't I don't see that being non-will- <laughs> non-willing right there. Yeah, that's not non-willing. Yeah. Okay, well, that's all I have for them. All right, boys and girls, remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Send us, uh, let's see, check out the uh, website at www.twistedbluellc.com. Click on that Amazon link button because it is Black Friday season. Dun, dun, dun. It helps out the show. doesn't cost you anything else. just costs you a couple of extra minutes. Come on, help a brother out. I don't even have a jerry curl, but help a brother out. Right? <laughs> Whatever, Scott. Check out our blogs on Medium, Crime Beat that's on Medium, and a, a lot of other platforms that carry our blogs there's just seriously there's a freaking list <coughs> and it would take a whole other probably another episode to list them all um, let's see what else uh check out our patreon page yes. we got patreon up 
helps us out, helps you out. There's lots of swag, all that good happy horse shit. And uh, this show's copyrighted 2021 by Twisted Blue, LLC. All rights are reserved. I am super fabulous. Squatch is very... I'm super fabulous. Tammy's very Squatch-like. Anywho, we will talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye.